from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, every election cycle includes get-out-the-vote campaigns. But the 2020 election is seeing extraordinary levels of enthusiasm, engagement, and messaging. States are shattering early voting records and signaling the potential for historic turnout. We look at the push to get out the vote in 2020. Then, Dia de los Muertos, the annual Latin American tradition of honoring the dead, will take on a special significance this year with the pandemic and its disproportionate impact on the Latino community. We look at what the tradition can teach us in a year so heavily marked by loss. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Predictions that the pandemic would dampen voter turnout are not bearing out. In spite of, or maybe because of, the pandemic, people are standing in long voting lines, putting out lawn signs, or volunteering to help get out the vote. Even celebrities and organizations you may have never expected are making the push. Here's artist Tyler, the creator, on Instagram Live last month, confessing he hasn't voted until now. This is actually going to be my first time voting, but... I am on the other, I see the light. And a lot of y'all gonna be like, eh, my vote doesn't matter. And they're gonna pick who they want. Keep that up. Y'all was posting black squares and, and, and protesting from y'all phone and, and writes this and canceling everybody. Pull up. Y'all want a new DA, pull up. In this half hour, we want to hear what you're doing to walk the talk and get out the vote, especially if it's something you're doing for the first time. Joining me now is Mindy Romero, founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy, formerly the California Civic Engagement Project, a nonpartisan research center at the University of Southern California. Mindy Romero, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. You've pointed out that one thing that the U.S. does not really have is a culture of voting. What do you mean by that? Well, I I think it's quite obvious. So first off, the numbers don't lie. If you look at our turnout rates, we have some of the lowest, consistently some of the lowest turnout rates of any established democracy in the world. Uh, And we have great disparities within our turnout rates by age, um, race, other statuses. And it's completely socially acceptable, or at least it has been, to not vote. Uh, it's a good thing, many in many circles, right? Uh, but if you haven't voted, you're not going to you know, get any kind of real pushback. And we certainly don't mm-hmm. offer a lot of support to voters because we put the burden largely of voting and registering on the voters themselves, which is also different than other nations. What impact, I mean, especially among young people, do you think hearing from previously disillusioned or apathetic voters who now, as Tyler, the creator put it, have seen the light? I mean, what impact does it have on motivating people to change their behavior and cast their first vote? Do you mean this election in the context now? Yeah, just in terms of hearing from people, like as you were saying, who were previously not voters saying, you know what, I, I was not. I'm that person, but I'm doing it now. Do you think that has a particularly strong effect, especially on young voters or first-time voters? I think it does. Uh, You know, it's exciting to hear anyone say that, that they want to participate now if they haven't before. And I think that hearing others hearing that message, others that haven't participated before or wondering whether they should this election, if they hear from peers, people like them, similar life experiences, particularly young, right, young to young, and it's real, right? It's an honest 
conversation on honest confession, right, in terms of where they were previously. People can see themselves in that. And really for particularly for young voters, often it's it's not about that they don't care about the electoral process or they don't care about the world around them. They care very deeply. But the work that they do or the issues that they care about, they don't see often uh, why voting is an actionable step for those that aren't voting, why voting is an actionable step on the things they care about. The case for voting has to be made. And when you hear a peer talking about why it's important now to vote, that can be very powerful. So let's talk about this year. I mean, we're seeing a lot of indicators that there is massive turnout, potentially historic turnout. What are you noticing that's different about Get Out the Vote this year? Well, certainly the early numbers, right? We can't escape it. We're seeing it everywhere. The reports in the media, uh, you know, we're at 75 million plus uh, votes cast. 50 of them are vote by mail votes across the United States. In California, we're at eight and a half million ballots, right, that have already been returned in some way, either in you know, through the mail or Dropbox or some in person already. So that's really exciting. And these numbers are outpacing far, just blowing blowing the doors off of what we typically see at this early stage. In California, we're about three times the pace. Um, you know, the, in many parts across the country, we're also seeing specifically the youth vote, uh, voting in numbers that, again, far outpacing what they've done thus far in 2016, or, or in some cases already, um, already running up the totals that equal to what they do, have done completely in 20, or did completely in 2016. California, you know, we're, we're still looking at the numbers. Um, up until very recently, most of the early vote was dominated by older voters. Um, mm-hmm. We expected that. Um, it typically is. It's just the difference was that these typically early voters were voting very early, right? Get, getting, the, getting them in in the first few days, first week, first two weeks. We're starting to see some of the numbers turn where young people, age 18 to 24, for instance, or 18 to 34, are getting more represented within those numbers. Um, but I think, you know, in the end, when the dust settles, the election is over and we've tallied everything up, I think we'll have a very, obviously, a very good year for turnout and a very good year for youth turnout. Uh, but we still have a ways to go to see how much is front-loaded. Will this pace continue all the way through to Election Day? And just how high the numbers are actually going to be. Yeah. And a big question is the gap between young and old. Uh, will everybody turn out, right? All the numbers go up, but the gap, the disparity between young and old stay about the same. Historically, it typically does. Or will young people gain ground on older voters and actually become better represented? I think they will, but we'll have to see how much better represented. Yes. Well, let me invite our listeners to join the conversation and tell us, do you have a new or different level of enthusiasm to vote this year? Have you participated in Get Out the Vote efforts? And if so, how? Or how has it been to be on the receiving end of all of this Get Out the Vote outreach? You can share your experiences at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Jennifer writes, after the shock of 2016, I vowed to never sit on my behind again. For the first time ever, I assisted in two phone banks. I assisted in a massive handwritten postcard campaign for Amy McGrath in Kentucky, and I assisted a local former mayor with her postcards for a local hospital directorship. And the biggest thing I did is fly back to my small red hometown in Ohio and have personal conversations with people. I mean, Mindy Romero, what do you think is driving this enthusiasm? I mentioned in the intro that paradoxically, the pandemic may actually be spurring mm-hmm. voter turnout because people yeah. just have a greater sense of the stakes. 
Yeah, I, I think yeah, the stakes have been high for a long time. For many voters, it's because of 2016. Uh, for voters that were indifferent for 2016, they've still been living with policy changes, right, um, and uh, policy impacts over the last four years. Um, and, of course, there's many voters that, you know, have been happy about the policy changes that we've seen and want to continue to see more. So I think, you know, there's certainly an enthusiasm right now for getting those ballots in early. I think a big part of that also is that people that do find this consequential and for many of them have been waiting, right, to, to make a statement, uh, to, to feel like they have some power, some control, want to get that ballot in early to know that they've done it, right, to maybe even breathe a sigh of relief. Another part of this, though, quite frankly, I think is, you know, um, not necessarily strategically, but just practically speaking, getting their ballot in early so they know that nothing's going to interfere with it. So they don't have to worry about USPS and delays there. Um, there's been a lot of rhetoric around the safety of vote by mail and those sorts of things. So I think people are wanting to get that ballot in just to know that it's in there safely and secure. And that for, and for many, it's also um, a, a relief and uh, something they've been waiting to do for quite a long time. Hmm. Right, to well, have a statement, have a statement in the next presidential election, right? Yes, some people have talked about wanting to do this for four years. Um, yeah. Let me invite Kate Kelly of the New York Times to join us. Uh, she wrote a piece in about how corporate America is having a civic awakening. Kate Kelly, thanks so much for coming on Forum. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, what are some examples that you found in your reporting of corporate America having this civic awakening, as you say? Well, so the history is not long, but the numbers are kind of astonishing. In 2018, uh, CEOs of uh, Patagonia, the outerwear maker, along with Levi Strauss and PayPal, all California companies, um, put together an initiative called Time to Vote. And Time to Vote was essentially looking to get companies to agree to give paid time off to vote for their employees, among other things. And by the midterms of 2018, they had about 400 signees from the corporate world. As of this moment, they have more than 1,800. So it's quite a large uptick. Um, in addition to that, you have other organizations doing similar things that have also seen rapid growth, uh, particularly in recent months. And we can talk a little bit about why people think that is. Um, but uh, you've seen individual corporations giving time off, giving people paid time off, not just to vote, but also to volunteer to be poll watchers. Right. Um, I spoke to Tori Birch, who was sort of an, or the fashion designer, who was sort of an early voice in all this. And back in 2016, she wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal arguing that all companies should do this. So it just seems like civic engagement as encouraged by corporate uh players has really exploded. And what are they telling you about why they're doing this? Because I know corporations try to be careful about being nonpartisan. Yeah, and I think that's a concern of perception out there, depending on the company. For example, Patagonia is known for being active um, with climate change and other environmental issues. Depending on the company, there's a perception that this is um, an effort to help Democrats or, you know, employees are being encouraged to vote Democrat. I don't see any evidence that that's true. I mean, every company, of course, has its own culture, and some companies may have um, employees gravitate toward them uh, if they perceive a certain political leaning. But everything I've seen suggests that these efforts are totally nonpartisan and nothing but a corporate attempt to encourage involvement, which you're seeing from other institutions and mm -hmm. cities and states as well. Do you think there's a bottom line interest here in any way? Yeah, it's interesting. So 
when I ask people why this upsurge in engagement, what, what are the factors here? Um, a lot of it seems to be related to the social protests we've seen over the summer, the concerns about racial inequities and police violence uh, as demonstrated, particularly after the killing of George Floyd in late May. Um, however, some also say that CEOs are actually trying to get ahead of an issue that they know is an employee concern, and they want to be regarded as good, compelling employers that are sort of mission-oriented, that are doing important work, that are allowing people to bring their whole selves to work. People have probably heard that term before. And, you know, in some cases, employees are arguing for this uh, at the grassroots level, but equally or even more so, CEOs are saying, hey, this is actually good publicity for me. This is an easy thing to do, and employees want it, and I want to be regarded as a good employer. Kate Kelly of the New York Times, thanks so much for talking with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll have more on efforts to get out the vote, what different organizations, businesses, as Kate Kelly was just saying, what they're doing to try to get more of their workers out there doing their civic engagement. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, if you want to share your efforts or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the surge in enthusiasm to get out the vote this election. We're joined by Mindy Romero, founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy. And you, our listeners, telling us what you have done to get out the vote this year, especially if it's something you've done for the first time or if you're feeling a new level of enthusiasm to get out the vote. You can also tell us what it's been like to be on the receiving end of this if you'd like. Ellen writes, I wrote 200 postcards to voters in Georgia and mailed them using postcard stamps from the post office. Let me go to Mariana in Berkeley. Hi, Mariana. Hi there, Mina. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm from Brazil, and uh, like other uh, 10 Latin American countries, Brazil requires that all its citizens vote. So you have to go to a voting poll on a Sunday. It's always on a Sunday because then everybody can go. and we all vote. I mean, I was raised as a little girl that I would go with my parents to. So that's something that you just do as an act of civic engagement. And nobody questions that. You vote, period. Mm-hmm. And it's enforced in different ways, but it is enforced. For example, to get a passport, if you don't show these little tabs that you, should, that you get when you vote, like I voted, you have to pay a fine. And, and it's not very not a very significant fine, but it's embarrassing that you didn't vote. So it's something that's a social uh, commitment that Mm -hmm. we do. So my question is, why is it that the United States doesn't require its citizens to vote? Yeah. Mariana, thanks. And Minnie Romero, Mariana is not the only person to ask this question. What's your response to Mariana? Minnie Romero? Uh, And while we try to connect... Oh, there you are, Mindy. Oh, whoops. I think we need to try to connect with Mindy Romero. But in the meantime, we'll try to get an answer to your question there, Mariana. We also got a voicemail from a listener, Susan, describing how she was not really involved in electoral politics until this year. Let's listen. I've been a community activist all my life, but I've really never gotten into electoral politics until this election. For me, the Democratic Party has 
always represented the lesser of two evils. So I'm much more motivated to work on uh, community issues and not get behind a candidate that I'm lukewarm about. However, uh, once Trump was elected, I felt a lot of regret at not having taken his candidacy more seriously and worked against it like some of my friends had done. So this time around, even though I'm very disappointed with the Democratic ticket, I've been putting in several hours a week on, uh, you know, writing postcards, texting, doing phone calls, just particularly trying to get out the vote in communities where the vote has been suppressed. That was a voice message from listener Susan. Minnie Romero, are you back with us? Hi, Mindy, are you there? And while we wait to try to reconnect with Mindy there, I think we were just getting that connection going. I want to invite Carla Zombro to join us. Carla Zombro is the field director for the Million Voters Project, a coalition working to mobilize one million new and infrequent voters to the polls around an agenda of equity and inclusion in California. Carla Zombro, welcome to Forum. Yeah, yeah. Hi, good morning. So thanks so much for joining us. First, can you tell us a little bit more about the Million Voters Project and why a million? Why a million is the goal for you in terms of this state? I mean, a million is a really bold number, but it's also a number that can actually have a decisive impact on the outcome. Um, For so long, local community groups from, from all over the state, rural areas, inner cities, you know, have kind of been... Um, sidelined. And a lot of our folks have have not participated because, to be honest, the the system hasn't worked well for low-income communities of color across the state. So we came together with the idea of what would it take to actually make a major shift in the election, electorate, so that it actually started to reflect California's diversity. We have big ideas for really bold change. And folks have for a long time said, well, that's not winnable. We can't do that. We're trying to answer the question of what will it take to win these things? And 2020 really is our year where I think we're going to see a a major shift. And it's 95 local community groups from little storefronts to people's houses all over the state. Um, Some major groups that folks have heard of, like Chirla um, in in the Los Angeles area, but, um, but also local emerging small community groups um, in in the Bay Area and all over the state. So um, it's a very exciting time to be doing this work. I understand that you spent much of last year preparing for a ground game of door knocking (laughs) and face-to-face interaction and then the pandemic hit. How did you have to pivot? Wow. Yeah, it was literally going to be a ground game. We spent all last year figuring out how we were going to knock on every single door uh, we pivoted. We pivoted uh, hard. You know, the, the one of the things was that's really unique about our coalition. It was a very intergenerational effort where we have like our aunties and uncles on Zoom meetings for the first time and and using tablets and smartphones. We went from an, an in-person large phone centers and door to door to now um, people phoning from home using their computers and devices an entirely remote as well as digital program. Um, And a lot of the younger activists taught um, us folks who weren't quite as tech savvy how to use these new tools. And we've actually been able to to, to achieve the scale that we had hoped for 
um, in in this fall program. Uh, we're getting out the vote around one of the key ballot initiatives, um, but it was a really steep, really quick learning curve. <laughs> and um, you know, we come from communities that have had to figure out how to make a dollar out of fifteen cents for a long time. So we figured it out. <laughs> well, that's I'm so glad to hear that. And also, you know, we were hearing from Mindy Romero that the early surge in voting were likely voters initially, older voters, mm-hmm. likely voters. Are you seeing anything that tells you that your efforts are working, that we will see a more representative electorate show up in California this year? That That is our hope. That is everything we've done really for, for as long as 10 years is, is towards that. And in previous program, we've proven it worked. You know, these final five days, that's what's going to determine if if we achieve the outcome of, of really actually starting to shift the electorate. Um, it is, you know, some folks have said, oh, African-American turnout is really high. Well, actually, there's a huge generational gap. In fact, um, turnout of young African-Americans is less than 10 percent right now. And so it's these final few days of in-person talking to each other um, and also bringing some joy to the polls. Like with we have mariachis and, um, you know, at some of the polls in East L.A., we have street vendors um, we're pulling, we're leaving nothing on the table because these, the, the surge is encouraging, but it is about the final five days, whether, whether it really becomes a reality for the folks who honestly have been the most impacted um, by economic injustice in the state. Carla Zombro, Field Director for Million Voters Project. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. And speaking of audacious numbers, Brad writes, I live in Rossmore, a retirement community in Walnut Creek. Among our different clubs, Rossmore is home to the largest Democratic Party club in the country. We've always done a lot of political activities, especially in election years. This year, another member and I set where we thought was an audacious goal, what we thought was an audacious goal of recruiting and training 200 texters before the election and to send out 20 million texts by election day. Well, we've now trained over 980 and we've spent, sent out about 63 million texts. We are currently averaging over 1 million texts a day. Uh, Mindy Romero, are you back with us? Were we able to get the phone line sorted out there? I think we have. <laughs> I hear you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. Before we dropped out, we had gotten this call from Mariana about why the U.S. doesn't make voting as a set day, a holiday, and a requirement that's enforced, like in Brazil. Yeah, so when we think there's a difference between making a holiday right and actually making voting a requirement, which I, I think was a question too. Um, you know, it uh, just when we think about who we are as Americans as part of kind of the American creed and the way we like to think about ourselves and uh, uh, the idea of being an American is uh, there's freedom, right of choice. And I think politically, um, you know, a, a lot of Americans don't want automatic voter registration, or at least some, I should say, don't want automatic voter registration because they feel like they don't want the government to um, register them. Um, I think once you talk about what the benefits, you know, can bring from that, that changes. But just uh, politically, I don't think that um, we're at that point to make it a requirement. And quite frankly, I don't know if we would even need that because many of the countries that require voting, like in Australia, for instance, there's a fine if you don't vote, it's a minimal fine. There's many other aspects of that society that, again, have that culture of voting. Uh, in Australia, for example, uh, election day is, you know, you see block parties and people talking about in a civil way and in a fun way and sometimes not so fun way, uh, talking about the election, right? There's a great anticipation around it. So many of these countries that have requirements, 
They go hand in hand with other elements of the society that produce high turnout. In addition to just, frankly, how their electoral system is designed that allows more com- competition, that brings people into the electoral process uh, in a more substantive way. Here in the United States, we have a two-party system, uh, incumbents rule, winner-take-all, single-member districts, those sorts of things that make many voters feel like, you know, there isn't as much of a difference. Of course, there is, but it makes, makes them feel like there isn't as much of a difference or as much of a consequence to their vote, certainly at the local level when there's so many safe districts across the United States. So it was a long answer, but that those are important differences between us and other countries. And I would argue that some of what we talked about a moment ago, one of our other um, speakers around the corporate kind of uh, trends that we're seeing, all of that. And, yeah, it can be problematic when we're talking about corporations, certainly. But we're seeing this election from corporations, from uh, lots of different uh, sectors of our society talking about the importance of voting in a nonpartisan way. That is exciting because I've never seen anything like this before. And if we are eventually to get to a culture of voting in the United States where that expectation is there, um, you know, we could be potentially on that path. The real test is post 2020. Um, <laughs> and you know, can we keep do, it do up? Keep it, do we keep it up? And then also we're going to be still, you know, dealing with the repercussions of the election and all of the mistrust that is also, mm. uh, you know, uh, in, in that pool um, and yes. what happens with the election in terms of how people feel about our overall democracy and faith and trust in it. But certainly the, the you know, the there's going to be a challenge, I hope, in terms of keeping much of that just promotion of the importance of voting, period. Well, let me go to caller Tracy in Berkeley next. Hi, Tracy. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. I'm um a lifelong Californian. I've always voted. During the last 15 years, my neighbors and friends have, we've hosted a proposition party to discuss all the ballot measures. So I would say I'm an engaged voter, but I've never done what I've been doing this year, which is I have been phone banking twice a week for the last two months in favor of Proposition 15. I was a a public school child in Southern California in 1978 when um, Prop 13 passed, and I witnessed firsthand the devastation to the budget um, of Prop 13. And it's been fun talking to um, people when I've been called. So you've gone you've you've gone from having a party about propositions to actually reaching out and talking directly with them. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Tracy. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Let me go next to Adam in New York. Hi, Adam. Oh, hi there. Um, I, I, I don't know um, how early voting is going uh, over in California, but I can speak to uh, here in New York City. My, my wife and I um, just voted early on, on the Upper West Side, um, and uh, there is a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of people wanting to get out and vote. Um, we were about three and a half hours waiting in a line um, up by West 102nd Street that extended several blocks winding a real circuitous route. Um, but, you know, everyone just brings incredible good cheer and determination um, and and resolve to just make their votes here heard. Um, there's, there's a lot of patience out there and just a lot of joy and a feeling of a block party. Mm, um, wow. And people just saying, we, we are doing this and let's do this. Um, it's, mm. it's actually, it was a great feeling it's it's the best feeling that I, I've had voting in, in any year. Well, I'm glad to hear it. We're really ex- you're really experiencing the enthusiasm that we're 
also reading so much about as well and seeing reported. Interestingly, um, Mindy Romero, there's a comment here that I'd love for you to respond to that's a bit of a pushback on voting. The listener writes, why is it that voting is always characterized as a universal good? I want everyone who's interested and educated about the policies and candidates to vote and no one who is uninformed Mm. to vote. Does your guest want the disinterested and uneducated to vote? If so, why? Okay, so that's a slippery slope when we go down that path. So when we, I mean, I certainly appreciate the question, but we have a, unfortunately, a very long history in the United States of uh, denying the right to vote to many groups. Um, And often there's some sort of judgment to that, or at least in the justification around that, we say somebody's vote is not as worthy, right? Literacy tests, right? And poll taxes, for instance. There is a, a, uh, a threshold that people have to, Right, reach to be able to show the worthiness of their vote. Right, much of the conversation mm-hmm. today, Yeah, much of the conversation today around the youth vote. If you really look at it, a lot of people that you know aren't so sure about promoting young people voting, they'll say, "Well, are, no, are they are they wise enough? You know, wait, maybe wait till they pay taxes before they start making decisions on me and my pocketbook. Wait till they get older, no more." And that's really a judgment on their vote. So once we go down that path, it's a very dangerous, slippery slope. Who makes those determinations? Right. Who says when somebody is qualified enough? Um, You know, I think that's that's enough there. I can leave it there. Um, Let me yeah. Let me go to uh, caller Carol in Santa Rosa. Hi, Carol. Hi. Apropos of that last comment, I was trained to be a voter by my mom when I was eight years old. Um, President nominee Kennedy was running for president. And my mom, my mom took me and my brother and sister, and we stood out in the rain in Philadelphia for three hours to hear candidate Kennedy speak. And then on election night, my mom was up all night watching TV, and we were up with her. And it inspired me so much that I have never missed an election in my life. And I, mm-hmm. I want to encourage parents to involve their children in the process because I realized how important it was to her and um, – and it became that important to me. Carol, so we thanks. can set an example. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story and also for that advice. Mark writes, I worked for the better part of a month writing letters to fringe Democrats in swing states urging them to vote. These letters are nonpartisan and include my personal message of why I vote. In all, I wrote and sent over 725 letters. On the other side of this crucial election, I want to know that I did what I could to help mm-hmm. get out the vote. Uh, You know, one group that I think has been kind of doing it right in terms of a major entity, major organization that has both encouraged people to vote, but also uh, tried to set up some structure, some infrastructure to make that happen is the NBA. Have you noticed that, Mindy Romero? Yes. I mean, there's so many efforts right now. What's really interesting about the NBA, it's not just, um, you know, a bunch of uh, sports stars, right, saying that it's important to vote, which in and of itself can be powerful. But they're actually taking action, right? From what I understand, and I don't follow sports particularly closely, but in terms of um, what they appear to be doing is they're leveraging their power, um, their relationships, right, with owners and so forth to uh, get things like, you know, uh, arenas opened up for as voting locations. Uh, So they're putting a lot of action behind just behind their words and their public encouragement. You see people like Shaq talking about confessions, um, you know, very powerfully, I think for many, right, saying that he'd never voted before. And this is why he's voting now. 
So uh, it's, it's quite striking. Yeah. Yes, right. So really, and as you say, the question will be whether or not this sort of infrastructure that's being built this year will last. Are you hopeful, Mindy Romero? I am hopeful, but hope is not going to do it, right? Um, I think we all need to make a commitment that this isn't about wherever you are on the political spectrum. It's not about one candidate or one set uh, one set of political advantages, right? It is about keeping our democracy strong, making it stronger. And, and uh, it's going to take all of us to kind of push this forward to eventually get to a culture of voting where we all can be excited about the act of voting itself. And it isn't in reaction to any one particular person in, in a negative or, or fearful way. Mindy Romero, founder and director of the Center for Inclusive Democracy. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay with us for more Forum. I'm Mina Kim.